You know, there is something that sets Jesus apart from all other religious leaders. You think of the popular ones, Buddha, Mohammed, John Smith, Sun Young Moon, remember him? Whatever happened to him? There's many of religious leaders throughout human history. Many are still alive today. As a matter of fact, you know what a, uh, anthropologists say? That there are 18,000 gods and goddesses that people worship. Whew. I'm like, where do they get them all? 18,000? I can see maybe 18. 18,000. Wow. And yet with all those religious leaders and gods and goddesses, there's one who stands out from them all. And you know why? It's because he is incarnate. In our time together today, we will study the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Now, incarnation is a basic biblical term, and as followers of Christ, we should all be familiar with it. So let me give you a little definition of what incarnation means. And don't let big words scare you. It's, it's theology. It's what we base our faith on. So we really need to understand these terms, okay? Here's, this is incarnation. When a member of the Godhead enters permanently into the human family. That's incarnation. A member of the Godhead enters permanently into the human family. Now, Jesus became a man. And the incarnation of Christ is one of the seven great events of history. What are the great events of history? I'm going to tell you what I think they are. Number one, the creation of the angels. Number two, the creation of material things and life on earth. Number three, the incarnation of Christ. Number four, the death of Christ. Number five, the resurrection of Christ. Number six, the return of Christ. Number seven, the reign of Christ. And did you notice that Jesus Christ is involved in every one of these? Yeah, because he is the creator. So he he's the creator of the angels. He's the creator of the universe, of earth, and life on earth. He did it all. So all of these seven greatest events of history have to do with Christ. So this carnate individual, he's a member of the Holy Trinity. He's the second person of the Godhead. He's not the Father, and He's not the Holy Spirit. He is God the Son. And that, by the way, when we say the first person, the second person, the third person of the Trinity, that doesn't speak of their uh, power or authority. They're all co-equal. It speaks of their revelation of themselves to us, okay? It was God the Father, it was God the Son, now we live in the day of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so the Holy Trinity, 
is made up, made up of three distinct persons, or personalities. We, persons that doesn't mean they have bodies, but they're persons. Now, there is a belief system called oneness theology. And it has the Trinity as one, one person, but appearing in three forms at separate times. There's a very popular preacher today, very eloquent, very wealthy. He's got a big mansion and a Rolls Royce. A lot of people love him. A lot of people support him. But he is an inherent to this oneness theology. And on the website of his church and their statement of beliefs, here's what they say about God. There is one God, creator of all things, infinitely perfect, and eternally existing in three manifestations, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, it doesn't say existing in three persons, but in three manifestations. So as one person manifesting himself, sometimes as the Father, sometimes as the Son, sometimes as the Holy Spirit. That is not what we believe the Bible teaches. We believe the Bible teaches that there is a Godhead. As a matter of fact, when Jesus was baptized by John at the Jordan River, Christ is in the water. The voice of the Father spoke from heaven, this is my beloved Son, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in the form of a dove. So we have the three appearances of the Godhead all at the same time. So of the three persons of the Godhead, it was Christ alone who took upon himself human flesh. Now, Jesus Christ, again, unlike other belief systems, he came from eternity past. Okay? John the Apostle acknowledged this in John 1 verse 1. He said, in the beginning was the Word. And by the way, the beginning is like the beginning way before there was a beginning. That phrase means eternity past. In the beginning was the Word, okay, and the Word was with God, all right, and the Word was God, okay, no problem here. So, this Word was with God in eternity past. He was in the beginning with God. He is also, wait a minute, John said, the Creator. Verse 3, all things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, Nothing came into being that has come into being. Okay? So we've got this word that was with God in eternity past, and he's the creator of all things. And then John closed the case in verse 14. And that word, it became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So he's talking about, wait a minute, we walked with Jesus Christ. He took upon himself human flesh. We saw his glory at the Mount of Transfiguration when his body was transfigured before us and his garments glowed with the brightness of heaven. Moses and Elijah were there ministering to him. We saw the whole thing. That was his glory. So John was an eyewitness to the fact that Jesus took upon himself human form. 
So what I want to do right now, I want to give you six benefits of the incarnation. Okay? And I hope you don't find it boring because if you do, then you don't, you're never going to grow in God because these are foundational truths that we build our faith on. I find them exciting. So I hope you do too. So number one, the first benefit of the incarnation of Christ, the fact that he took upon himself human flesh. He revealed the Father to us. In John 1.18, he said, No one has seen God at any time, speaking of God the Father. The only begotten God who was in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. The only begotten God, who was that? Begotten means the one that was uniquely born. That's Christ. Virgin born, right? Uniquely born, conceived by the Holy Spirit. He has explained him. The word explain means to draw out in a narrative. In human form, Jesus revealed to us what God the Father is like. How would we know what God the Father was like without Christ? We wouldn't. And yet, he revealed more than the power of God, more than the wisdom of God. He also revealed the love of God. Jesus said, if you want to see the Father, look at me. I am the embodiment of all that is in the Father, and I've come to reveal him. I like that. You know, Paul said in Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us. Okay, this is God's love. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So God the Father loved us, and Jesus came and demonstrated that love by dying for us. Wow, what a benefit of the incarnation of Christ. Secondly, the second benefit, he became our kinsman redeemer. Now, this is an Old Testament principle found in Leviticus 25, where if a man became so poor and he sold himself into slavery to work off the debt, a relative could purchase his freedom. Okay, here's what it says in verse 48. Then he shall have redemption right after he has been sold. One of his brothers may redeem him, or his uncle, or his uncle's son, which would be his cousin, may redeem him. Or one of his blood relatives from the family may redeem him. Or if he prospers, he may redeem himself. Now, here's the catch. No one could redeem him except a near relative, a blood relative, okay? I mean, if he was fortunate enough to prosper and redeem himself, but that was pretty unlikely. So when you think about our redemption, based on the principle of the kinsman redeemer, in order for Christ to be our kinsman redeemer, he had to become one of our kin. He had to become one of us. Secondly, the kinsman redeemer also had to be willing to pay the redemptive price. He couldn't be manipulated or forced. He had to be willing. And that's why Jesus said in John ten seventeen, For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay my life down so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me. 
but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. So we see Jesus had to become human in order to redeem us based on the kinsman-redeemer principle. He had to take on human flesh so he could die. And this leads us to the third aspect or the third benefit of Christ's incarnation. He made atonement for sin. Yeah. You know, the Apostle Paul, what a guy. He got so much revelation from God. What was it like for him? God just kept filling him with wisdom, and he wrote it down in all these epistles. Ephesians, Galatians, Philippians, right? Colossians, Thessalonians, Corinthians, all these letters he wrote. God is like, here, Paul, write this down. And he's writing it all down for us. And he wrote down in Ephesians chapter 2, speaking about Christ's atonement for sin. Verse 15, he said, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, that means the the warfare, the hostility, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. What does that mean? It means that Jesus came and he abolished in his flesh the hostility between the law that man was trying to fulfill, right? And I would say, grace, and he established peace. He did that in his flesh. Don't forget, he didn't do it as deity. He did it as human. He didn't utilize divine power for his own benefit. He always, oh, you're going to, you know what I'm going to say? He always operated in faith. Think about that. He operated in faith. Lazarus, come forth. That was a statement of faith. Little girl, rise. That was a statement of faith. Pick up your bed and walk. That was a statement of faith. Can you see how close Jesus lived to his father? To have that kind of faith. Knowing that, hey, whatever I say is because this is what my father told me to say. Whatever I do... This is what my father told me to do. I wish I was like that. Now, the things I do, God didn't tell me what to do. And boy, do I regret them after. <laughs> and there are things I say, they sure didn't come from God. And I put my foot in my mouth. Like, Why did I say that? I did. That wasn't God. And I think we've all had that, haven't we? So number four, the fourth benefit of the um, incarnation of Christ Not only did he atone for our sins, he didn't like save us and leave us here. He reconciled us back to God. This is what Paul said in Ephesians 2, verse 16, that he might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity or the hostility. So Jesus Christ, in his incarnation, In his human frame, he reconciled us back to God. To reconcile back means to lay aside contentions. It means to coexist in harmony. And that's what we're able to do 
as followers of Christ, we coexist in harmony with God the Father. See, without Christ, there's no harmony. Think about it. People are trying to use religious activities to find harmony with God. It'll never happen. You can't pray and have harmony with God. You can't have ritual and have harmony with God. It has to be through the atonement of Christ, where you acknowledge that He died for your sins. And it's through that that you have harmony with God. So it's really important. Can you see Satan's attack on the gospel? Satan's attack on the person of Christ? Because that's the basis of harmony. That's the basis of being brought back to God. And Satan will do everything he can to mar the name of Christ, to mar the grace of God and the good news of Christ and even what Christians stand for. And he's ramping it up today, isn't he? Oh, yes, he is. Oh, yes, he is. The fifth benefit that we have, I'm going to summarize these at the end. The fifth benefit is, for his incarnation, it's the, it's the basis of our salvation. It really is. You know, John, he had a pretty good insight into this as well. And he said in 1 John 4, 2, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Come in the flesh means that, hey, wait a minute, he pre-existed in eternity past, and now he arrived in the flesh. See, John was dealing with a belief system called Gnosticism. The Gnostics were intellectuals, and they believed that all matter contained sin. So Christ could not have a body, because that would make him sinful, and therefore Christ is a spirit. He's not a body. But wait a minute. John says, let me tell you something. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So those that say he didn't come in the flesh, they're not from God. But those that say he did, they're from God. See, that, that, no, that not only blows Gnosticism out of the water, that blows oneness theology out of the water. Because Christ isn't a simple manifestation of one member of the Godhead. Christ is an individual member of the Godhead. They're three distinct individuals. They're not one individual revealing themselves, putting on one hat, taking off the other hat, putting on another hat. Well, I think right now I'll be the Father. Well, right now I'm going to be the Spirit. Well, right now I'm going to be the Son. No, that is not it. It is, this is the Father, this is the Son, this is the Spirit. That's the Godhead. And when you confess that, when you confess Christ from eternity past has come in the flesh, now you're speaking from the Spirit of God. It's so simple. I, I, I don't know, simple to me, and I'm a pretty simple person. I am not an intellectual. I just like to read the Bible for what it is. Number six, the incarnation of Christ is the basis 
of the hypostatic union. That's a good word. Don't get scared. It's a good word. What is the hypostatic union? It's the union of two natures. It's the union of his divine and his human nature in one person. That's all. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 talks about it. Paul said, speaking of Christ, although he existed in the form of God, right? In eternity past, he was divine. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or held onto. But here's what he did. He emptied himself. It means he laid aside his glory, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. There it is. He emptied himself of his deity, which means he laid it aside. He still possessed it, but he didn't utilize it. He came in the likeness of men. Verse 8, being found in appearance as a man. This is what all humans should do. He humbled himself <laughs> by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So he became a man to go to the cross. No man, no cross. A spirit can't die on a cross. So Jesus took upon himself humanity. He became our kinsman redeemer, and he had a body that could die. And in that death, he atoned for the sins of the world. And therefore, Jesus added humanity to his deity, but he did not remove his deity. That's why we call it the union of two natures. He's all God and he's all man. He's not half God and half man. He's all God and all man. Okay? So, I don't know about you, but I think it's a very important study to understand the incarnation of Jesus Christ. So, let me give you a quick summary. And there's no reason you can't commit this to a mind of understanding. We are able to not only know it, but share it with another person. There's no reason why you shouldn't be able to do that. It's all, it all falls into place, okay? So here it is. When Jesus entered the human race by means of a virgin physical birth, he merely left where he was in heaven to enter our existence. And he did that for six reasons that I had today. Was it six? Yeah. Okay. And here they are. Number one, why did he come? To reveal the Father to us. No one has seen the Father, but he that has seen me has seen the Father. He demonstrated the Father's love to us by dying for us. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So that's a demonstration of God's love. Secondly, we have the incarnation so he could become our kinsman redeemer. Remember, the kinsman redeemer had to be a relative, had to be a blood relative, and had to be willing to do so. And then the third thing, he had to have the ability to do so. So we've got those three things in Jesus. Number one, He's our kinsman redeemer because he was human. Number two, he died willingly on our behalf. But number three, he had the purchase price. 
He had what it costs for our redemption, His precious blood. That He was a perfect sacrifice for the sins of the world. So He had the means by which He could redeem us as well. He never sinned. That made His offering acceptable to God. Thirdly, He came to make atonement for sin. Right? Because we couldn't do it for ourselves. Like I just said, He became our high priest. He was the offerer and the offering. Number four, he not only saved us, he reconciled us back to God. He brought us back into a peaceful relationship with God the Father. Very important. Okay? Number five, he provided salvation. That's a potential for all people. Whosoever believes will be saved. There it is. There's no excuse. He died for the sins of the whole world. And then lastly, he added humanity to his deity for the purpose of the atonement for the sins of the world. That's called the hypostatic union. That's what that's called. The union of two natures in Jesus Christ. Okay? He came to atone for us, to make atonement on our behalf. And now, so those who believe in him will never perish, but have everlasting life. Look what he did. Look what he did for us. And when you think about leaving the glory of heaven, I mean like, are you kidding me? To leave the glory of heaven for us? If I, if I was in heaven, I don't think I'd want to come back. But he came back for us. He came back because he loved the Father. He loved us, but he loved the Father. Father said, Son, I love those people down there. I'm going to send you to atone. Yes, Father. Remember, co-equal, co-eternal, but for the purpose of the benefit of man, Jesus had a subservient role because he took upon himself the form of a man. He made himself subservient to God the Father, as we should too. Don't you think? Don't you think we should be subservient to God the Father as human beings? Humble ourselves. Humble ourselves because we are in the form of humans. I think it's a great study. You can catch this study again at the Hope Club Podcast. That's all you need to do. Type it in, the Hope Club Podcast. It's worth learning and sharing. Thanks for coming along. I'll see you next time.